Welcome to the Talk of Sykeston. I'm Glenn Cantrell. We're talking today about the city of Sykeston. Lots of things are going on. It's uh, the new year, 2020, and uh, lots of new things on the agenda for the city. And so we're talking with Jonathan Douglas today. He's the city manager for the city of Sykeston. We've had him on before. And so, Jonathan, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. So uh, lots of things going on, but before we get into like the Sykeston-specific things, and although this is Sykeston-specific, it's really specific for the entire U.S., something very important taking place this year is the census. Every 10 years we go through this process of the government essentially counting who lives where. And um, I know the city is pushing to make sure people participate. Let's first talk about why is this so important for the citizens of Sykeston to participate in the census? Well, there's uh, uh, the real short answer is dollars and democracy, and uh, the census will will talk about how um, so much money, particularly from the federal government. Of course, it's the federal government that undertakes the census, but of of all of our tax dollars that come out of Sykeston and out of Missouri and go to the feds, they come back to us largely based on. Uh, our population. And so the state of Missouri, they estimate that Missouri, for every person that is not counted in the census, that that doesn't fill out the forms, that doesn't fill out them out correctly, um, that doesn't want the government to know where they live, uh, for every person that doesn't fill it out, the state of Missouri loses $1,300 in federal funding. And that's money that comes back into our community in, in street funding, education funding, social programming, things that are important to people here. So, so that's the dollars part. And then democracy, um, the census is the basis for all kinds of, of redistricting, whether that's at, at the local level or the state or the, or the federal level. Uh, and after the 2010 census, in fact, Missouri lost a state representative. So we lost some of our voice in Missouri uh, after the last census because other states, um, comparative to us, had gained population and we had uh, not grown or, or we had lost population. And so we lost the seat in Congress. Yeah, I mean, the way, I mean, smartly done by our forefathers, the way they, they established our government, it's uh, at least in the House of Representatives, every state has two senators, but in the House, it really does depend on how many people live in your state and then the redistricting, if you will, of that particular state, again, based on population. And the fact that we lost um, a representative in the House is, is is a big deal. I mean, it's, it's a one less voice the state of Missouri has um, in making decisions about our government. That's right. You got some high growth states, Texas, Florida, others that are uh, that are gaining a lot of population, and uh, and and essentially we're giving seeding our our voice to them if we don't at least count everybody that lives here. Now, you know, are we gaining population? Are we losing population? Uh, it's hard to say until the census is done, but we sure want at least everybody that's here to be counted and to not lose representation just because people have, have been difficult to count. I don't think people realize the the man hours it takes to do this census. I mean, this is a huge undertaking the government takes on every 10 years, and it takes literally almost everyone in the community uh, to make it happen. Yeah, and, and the way they'll do this, they will first 
send out in mid-March, early to mid-March, uh, a mailing to every address, every residential address they have, uh, every apartment unit, every freestanding house. Um, they'll, they'll even send things to the to institutions, prisons, hospitals, where people may be staying long term. Uh, so everybody there is counted as well. But they'll send something out in in the mail in mid March, uh, encouraging people to fill out the census. Um, by uh, as soon as possible, but for sure by April 1st, uh, either online, by phone, or uh, filling out paper forms. They can request paper forms at that time. If people don't fill those out the, in a couple of weeks uh, afterwards, they'll get another mailer. The, 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 the feds will send out a couple of mailers, uh, and then if they still haven't got a response from a certain address, they'll actually mail the whole packet of paper forms. And finally, if that doesn't get back, they will start uh, canvassing in person, going door-to-door to addresses where they haven't received a response yet. So uh, one way to think about it, if you don't want somebody from the Census Bureau knocking on your door and bothering you to fill out your forms, just go online or go uh, or, or call the number they give you and and fill it out that way, and then you'll be done, and nobody will bother you again. Otherwise, they are going to follow up several times and make every effort to, to count everybody. I mean, on a scale of what it used to be like compared to what it's like today, it's easier because of technology, because you mentioned the phone or doing it online or whatever. Um, but in the other aspect, it's, it's somewhat harder um, because um, of how our nation is right now. I mean, we have so many people that are homeless, so many people that um, are, are what I call nomads. They just move from one place to another place to another place. And, and as I mentioned, you know, it's a, it's a large undertaking for the federal government and our local government, the volunteers that it takes to make this happen. But as you mentioned, the, the importance of the taxpayer part, um, we pay these taxes, we want them to come back to us so that we can make improvements to our roads or do things in our community that are needed to be done. Um, and that's really, I think, for me, the you know, besides the voice in Washington, the biggest reason why we've got to do this census and do it correctly is make sure that money comes back. That's right. I'll give you a, a, an example. The gas tax that you pay to the state when you go and fill up your vehicle at the gas station, uh, that money goes to the state of Missouri, and then they distribute uh, a portion of that back to the cities and the counties not based on how much gasoline was sold here, but based on our population. Uh, so if if our population gets undercounted and and uh, shows that we've shrunk or not grown, and we really have, uh, then we're going to lose out on that gas tax money. That's based solely on population. It, it, go, it comes back to us, and and that's just one example, but. Um, we do not want to miss out on money that we are entitled to, uh, that we've paid in taxes that should be coming back to us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to, um, to, to make this point, too. You know, when we talk about the chamber, the CVB, and economic development, those three entities, why they are so important to a community is not just attracting business, but you're attracting people. 
And hopefully, uh, you know, as you attract new business, either into our northern industrial park and what we soon will have, the southern industrial park, uh, that not only do we see jobs coming in, but we see people moving into the community. I know Sykeston's population has dropped, um, but, you know, uh, there's a effort to try to reverse that. And that's why economic development, the chamber, or the CVB, who does, you know, focuses on tourism and that sort of thing, why why those three are so important to attract the business, to attract the people, so population goes up so that we have more of that money coming back to the community to, to do those projects. It's very important. I mean, a business, they are going to look, when when somebody's looking at coming to Syston, whether as a, an industrial, uh, you know, manufacturer of some kind or a retail business, they're looking at, at two things. They're looking at the workforce is there enough are there enough people there to fill the positions we need uh and are there enough customers nearby and so if we get undercounted it looks like we don't have enough uh, people to fill their open jobs and it looks like we don't have enough people to buy their goods and so we're going to miss out on on those economic opportunities that uh that we all want to have to to make sure that our community is viable long term you know what's interesting to me, Jonathan, is is uh, what what the, what you just talked about, which was the you know the number of people in, the, in an area, but also not just because of jobs, but also how many of those people will come and come to a business, right? And uh, whether it be a, a sporting goods place or a restaurant or whatever, they're they're looking at essentially analytics in a way of all these of these areas, and it's always been shocking to me when I look at Popper Bluff and I'm like, why is Popper Bluff so special? Because population-wise, isn't that far off from us or whatever? But it's not Popper Bluff. It is the area surrounding Popper Bluff. Because all these little towns, they don't have a place to go but Popper Bluff. And so Popper Bluff attracts, you know, uh, an academy sports. They attract all these different restaurants and all these different retailers because of that fact. Um, here in Sykeston, we're so close to Cape Girardeau, it makes it a little more tougher, difficult for us to grab some of those. But that's why we try to bring in industry, why we try to do events, right? Create things that uh, make Sykeston a great place to live to attract more of those businesses, which hopefully we say attracts more uh, people to live here as well. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, the census plays a, a big part in that because the, the first thing that these businesses generally look at, and usually if you're talking about a big retailer, uh, they, are, they have a site selector uh, who works for them who is a consultant that just looks at those very things you're talking about. How far are people traveling? What's nearby? What's the population center? What are travel times? Um, and that stuff all is the, the data that feeds into that all comes from the census. And so what we as locals here have to do, you know, we're not the, the city's not employing the people that go out and actually get people to fill out their forms. Uh, you know, that's all the, the federal government, the Census Bureau. What they, uh, they ask the, the locals to do is just encourage our residents to, to do two things, fill out the forms and return them first of all. And then, and then second, make sure that everybody that is living in your home is counted, whether they're infants, children, grandparents, uh, spouses, partners, uh, temporary residents. You know, if, you're, uh, if your cousin is down on his luck and he's sleeping on your couch uh, for, for some time, he should be counted as living here. Um, so, 
um, it's just it's so important for everybody to people to fill out anyone that's living in your home put them on that on that list the census bureau they ask some follow-up questions about whether they're temporary or what and they'll determine if the person should be counted here or counted somewhere else uh, but um, we want we want everybody that's here that is that is a beneficiary of city services um, that is contributing to our community we want them counted in our community. You're talking about the census, which is really important. And Jonathan, one thing that we didn't even talk about um, is about history of, of uh, why that's so important. I, as someone who has uh, gone back and looked at family history, the census every 10 years helped out greatly in, in tracing back some of that family history. So that's another aspect that we didn't even talk about. Definitely. I went to the uh, Martin Luther King program here in Sykeston um, earlier this week. And one of the presenters there talked about that very fact. And when she looked back at her family history, um, there were people who essentially disappeared because they weren't counted at a certain census. And, you know, you they, they knew that Grandma such and such was here. Um, and then the next census, they they didn't get counted. And they didn't know, they don't know where they were at that period of time. Or they lost you know, that chain was broken, that, that genealogical chain was broken, and they lost track of their, their ancestor. And, and uh, those, those records, uh, I think, that they, they become public after 72 years. So, um, you know, you don't have to worry about your, your privacy being violated. Um, uh, but really, for, for historical purposes, they do release those long after we're all gone from this earth. Um, yeah. but, uh, but definitely serves a, a historical purpose. As well. And I will say, it is kind of neat if you do any type of, of search of your family history, and you run across these books and you see the names and the signatures, it's just kind of a neat, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's lost because we are so electronic now, but it, the, those old books and copies of it, it's just really kind of neat to, to look at. Yeah, yeah it definitely is. All right, so let's talk about the city of Sykeston. So some things happening this year. I know a discussion that kind of started last year, um, I, th- I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's been maybe tabled for now, is the um, allowing ATVs on city roadways, right? Sure. That was discussed, oh, maybe a year ago or so, and it started out with a discussion of uh, of golf carts. Um, uh, it, it eventually was tabled, but that discussion is is alive again. Um, we had a citizen come and make an impassioned plea to allow uh, UTVs uh, on city streets, not golf carts and not um, ATVs, but UTVs. Um, and so the city has done some work on that. Uh, we actually have it back on the agenda on Monday uh, for our next meeting. Um, we made some changes to the requirements about child safety restraints. Um, so we will see if the city council is ready to move uh, move on that or not. Yeah, I said ATV. I meant I meant UTV. I apologize. But uh, for anyone that doesn't know what a UTV is, I I tell people it's like a modern day dune buggy. Essentially, I mean it's got headlights and brake lights, but it's not exactly a car. Uh, but it can hold two to four people, depending what size you have. And there are people that just have these for fun little vehicles. But uh, obviously, I guess when you live in town, small community, maybe it comes in handy just to drive that around. Yeah, you'll see them uh, in a lot of communities in in our part of the world. Uh, people driving them on the streets. Um, they they're typically used in in farm applications or hunting or you know anything in the outdoors. A UTV is 
typically more substantial than uh, than an ATV. If you think about you know the old four wheelers that you that you drove, a UTV is a lot more substantial than that. And it's more substantial than a than a golf cart as well. I mean they they've got roll bars and and uh and more safety equipment and and a lot of communities have allowed them on the city streets and and others have not allowed them so that's the discussion we're having right now one of the things that's been really great um uh, gosh i don't know three four five years how long it's been but we've seen this uh really kind of uh, change in our um, sports complex and city parks and a lot of improvements and things have been done. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, but I know the, the complex and that the old Boot Hill Golf Club area, um, there's some things being discussed, right? That's right. Uh, the city acquired that, uh, the, the Boot Hill Golf Course, uh, back actually before I got here or right after I got here, so it's been six to seven years now. Uh, it is the, the BMU renovated the old clubhouse building, and it's now an event building that you can rent out for parties and and, and meetings and such. Uh, and then the rest of the property for now is just the, the trails are still out there, the old golf cart paths, and you can go out there and walk and, and bike um, and jog or whatever you, you want to do and get a little bit away from from the city. Uh, it, it's really peaceful out there, really nice uh, piece of property to go to go get out in, in nature a little bit. Um, the, it is adjacent to um, two important facilities in our community. One is the rodeo uh, to the north, and then to the south is our recreation complex. And what we are uh, planning this year, because we have, since the capital improvement sales tax passed a few years back, we've had more money to invest in our park system. And we've made a lot of improvements at the complex, to the ball fields, other things. We want to take a long-term view and think, all right, what are the what are the things in the next, you know, ten, fifteen, twenty years that our community is going to need from a from a park standpoint? And we've got this nice piece of property right here adjacent to our complex. So let's say that uh, next year we want to build a a ball field of some kind. Well, we want to know where should we put that on that property if that's where it's going to go. Um, because I would hate to build a ball field and then two or three years down the road think, well, I really wish we'd have built this uh, 200 yards that direction instead of where we put it. So the, uh, the, we, have our, we have on the agenda to hire a um, consultant to take our list of what we know we want out there, take the maps and look at the property and, and draw out where we could put all the things we want to put in the future. Uh, that way, when, it, when, we, when we come across the money through grants or through our capital improvement sales tax, and we want to make an improvement, we want to build something out there, we know where to put it so it fits into the long-term plan. Yeah, and the sports complex, I mean, it's been around... Gosh, for a long time. I played ball there when I was a kid, and and it's grown. You know, the football field, the soccer fields, and now with the addition to the Boot Hill Golf Club, uh, what used to be the Boot Hill Golf Club, that really kind of expands your horizon, so to speak, and what you can do. You're not so landlocked anymore. Yeah, for sure. And and uh, as our community hopefully grows, um, there's there's going to be more demand. And if you're if you're in a stage of life where you uh, have kids playing uh, baseball or, or soccer or anything, and you go out to the complex uh, on, on an evening when they're playing games, you will see hundreds and hundreds of people out there. Uh, you know, that, 
that recreation complex serves a lot of people, brings a lot of people into town, and uh, and we have every reason to believe we can bring more people here through tournaments and other things as we upgrade those uh, facilities to, to people's expectations today. Jonathan, we're, we're kind of quickly running out of time, but I want to get into uh, a discussion that's going to come up again this year, and that is the fireworks discussion. And um, there's been talk for some time about, you know, the fact that you can't sell fireworks in the city of Sykeston and you can't um, use them within the city limits of the city of Sykeston. What discussion is going on right now with fireworks? Well, uh, the mayor asked us to... To, to bring this back up for a little bit of discussion, uh, it's it's great to discuss this in January and February and instead of uh, May and June when the, the clock is ticking. Uh, but currently, as you said, you cannot uh, sell fireworks in town and you also cannot shoot fireworks in town. Um, what we have uh, are considering right now is removing the ban on selling them in town. You know, you if you live in Sykeston and you you drive from Sykeston into Minor or Sykeston south out into the county, you will notice that people set up fireworks stands just right across the border. Um, there, there's, there's really no meaningful distinction other than it's just across a, a city limit, and people are able to sell them there. Uh, so uh, we would like to consider whether we ought to allow them to be sold in town and have Sykeston be the beneficiary of, of those sales. Uh, there's also, you know, some talk of um, nonprofit um, beneficiaries as well, you know, youth groups that, that sell and churches that sell um, fireworks, have small fireworks stands. That's a, that's a possible um, use that's not, not even an option for people in Sykeston at the moment. So what we're talking about right now is only allowing the sale, not removing the prohibition on shooting fireworks. Gotcha. I'm sure there's a ton of people that would love to shoot fireworks as well, and uh, and that you know that's that's a debate that probably comes up every year in July. So, uh, but for now, we're just talking about the sale of fireworks. All right, Jonathan Douglas, uh, thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. And anytime, you're welcome back to keep us updated on what's happening in the city of Sykeston. Thank you very much. All right, Jonathan Douglas, City Manager for the City of Sykeston. We thank him for being on the show. Thanks for being with us. Remember, if you missed the talk of Sykeston, you can catch it on iTunes or Podbean. We uh, podcast the show as well. And uh, make sure you follow us on Facebook to see who is going to be on the show next. And, of course, if you have any suggestions, let us know. That's it for the talk of Sykeston. I'm Glenn Cantrell. <laughs>